0: Welcome to Religion Unplugged podcast. I'm Paul Gladder, executive editor at Religion Unplugged, and we've got a few people here today. We've got a board member, Dr. Paul Marshall uh, from Hudson Institute and in Baylor. We're actually here in Prague, the Czech Republic today, and um, we're at a program of the Fund for American Studies. We have uh, the Media Project and the Fund for American Studies. We have our European Journalism Institute program happening this week in Prague with two dozen young journalists from essentially all around the world. So Dr. Marshall and I are here for that. And then across the, the river, over the Charles Bridge, um, there's another TFAS program. We came over to see a professor, Dr. Joshua Mitchell, today. He's a professor of political theory at Georgetown University, a specialist in de Tocqueville and many other um, uh, subjects and topics. And he has a new book out that we wanted to talk with him about because we hear uh, it may relate to religion a bit, so great to be here with you, Dr. <laughs> Thank Rachel. You. Thank you. Good to be here. So, why don't you start by telling us a bit about, you know, the book. Why did you write it and what's the thesis? Well, the book
1: is called American
0: Awakening, Identity,
1: Politics, and Other Afflictions of Our Time. Um I should go way back. Uh, I I got my degree in political theory, but I also spent half of my time in the divinity school. So, I know religion when I see it. And the the political movement that that uh, I think whose genus is, is identity politics, and there are many species of this like CRT and, and DEI and cancel culture and all sorts of things like this. Um, identity politics to me is a profoundly, it's its not a politics, it's a religion. And more precisely, it's, it's a deformation of Christianity. Uh, what's interesting about identity politics is that it has many of the Christian symbols. Like for example, it has the category of irredeemable stain it has the category of the innocent victim. It has the understanding, like Christianity, that a scapegoat must take away the sins of the world. And so you put all that together in the form of identity politics, and what you get is uh, uh, something that I think is deeply anti-liberal, uh, which uh, is concerned most, first and foremost, with establishing purity and stain. And for the moment, I say the prime transgressor is the white heterosexual male. I have no interest whatsoever in racial politics. I mean that should be self-evident. Uh, but but my view is the, the grand hope of this movement is that by purging that group uh and everything he has wrought, like capitalism, dirty fossil fuels, Westphalian system of of, uh, of borders, uh I'm sure other things, the patriarchal family, the homophobic church, by purging the things that he has wrought, then somehow we can move to a, a post-lapsarian world order. Where all the problems have, have dissipated. And what's troubling to me is that if you look at all the actions of the action items of the Democratic Party, um, in point of fact, you get this view that if we can just purge, uh, we can just scapegoat this one group, hence the term toxic masculinity, mm-hmm. then everything will be fine. So I'm uh, uh, my view is that the only way America can survive is if we have what I call a politics of competence. It's what Martin Luther King said, content of our character. But what has supplanted that for the interim um, has been this innocence and victim culture, where the only thing that, that, uh, that allows you to count is if you have an innocence category. And, and I don't think you can build a world on that.
0: Hmm. So, all right, so can you give a few examples of how this manifests in our daily lives? I mean, I think some listeners are already tracking with those who are following the kind of intellectual debates and thought journals or even on Twitter are tracking with what you're saying but are there other manifestations or examples that you explain in well, your book that give, we see?
1: Well, there's there's lots that I explain in the book, but I'll just give one that immediately comes to mind from, say, the university setting. Uh, I teach history of Western ideas. And in the hands of those who believe in identity politics, these are all the works of, of dead white men. And so we have to transform political theory so that it's concerned with diversity, equity, and inclusion. In fact, Um, in my department, uh, my home department at Georgetown, there's a great move to make sure that, uh, we have what's called a citizenship requirement. And that citizenship requirement is explicit. You must have a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So in my view, this is, uh, more of a litmus test, a kind of membership test of the sort that happened in the McCarthy era in the University of California system, a loyalty oath, in effect. And I'm I'm a liberal pluralist, which means I, if there are people who have been excluded, the strength of liberalism depends on including everybody. And my view is that what's happening is in the name of diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, we are including some but excluding others. So what happens here is that uh, if you're a conservative woman, if you're a conservative black, if you're a conservative gay, somehow you can't really exist within this diversity, equity, inclusion culture. And this has happened many times at Georgetown, where we've proposed that we bring in, say, you know, women scholars, and they won't hire them because they're conservative. So I'm very troubled that we're we're moving from a world which was ostensibly committed to pluralism, which I take to be one of the great advantages of a, of a multi-ethnic, multiracial society in America. I love that about it. But what's happening is we're we're now moving in the direction of, of simply establishing who's pure. And who's stained. And, you know, as I said, the white man, the history of the white man, which is the history of Western political philosophy, that somehow has to be changed or purged. What I say in the book is that every day in America, citizens are going through the Passover ritual. Well, that's the Passover ritual. That's the ritual where, uh, in order for death to pass over, you have to paint the blood of an innocent lamb on the lintel of your front door. And I'm suggesting that everywhere in America now, every day, people, instead of paying attention to building competence, uh, they're practicing some version of a passive ritual. So, uh, if you, uh, if you put a Black Lives Matter sign in your front yard, social death will pass you by. Uh, if you put an off, op- this office is green and social death will pass you by. And, and I should be very clear. I do a lot of work with Bob Woodson, who I take to be a national treasure, who's a black conservative. Um, what I have concluded is that identity politics, which ostensibly is mostly fixed on, on race in America, um, that in point of fact it does tremendous harm to black America, uh, because it's really about appeasing white guilt, uh, uh, black lives matter signs, defund the police. Black Americans don't want to defund the police. so it, it lives a very distorted view of how we should can actually solve what I take to be the great problem in America, which is the race problem. So with the left, unlike the conservatives, I do believe that race is one of the central issues. My view is that identity politics is such a profound distortion that it makes it
2: impossible for us to do that. Yeah. Good. Could, could I, I just ask, um, did you, you put your finger on one of the many tensions here, which is the identity politics is, you know, if you're black, if you're a woman, um, you you, you at least have sex, you don't share the maximum guilt of others. However, if you happen to be a woman, or you're black, with the wrong views, you're suddenly you're kicked out. So Hershel it's Walker sort of ideology versus identity. Yeah. And ideology seems to trumpet, I'm sorry, you're the wrong sort of woman. Yeah, so,
1: so this is the big problem uh, with diversity. I mean, diversity sounds like pluralism, but it's not. Because what's going on here, and you put your finger on it, is that these groups have to be monovalent. So all all whites are simply this. All women are simply this, and they have to be left, left of center. All blacks must be this. So so, uh, Hannah Nicole Jones counts, sixteen nineteen project. Yep. But Bob Woodson, Glenn Lowry, black conservatives—they're not going to be heard on CNN. Uh, so. So, ostensibly, it's to make visible those who have been invisible, but it does so with the view of groups that are monovalent. So, Clarence Thomas is not a black man. So, Joe Biden is going to bring the first black, right, because he doesn't count. Mm-hmm. He, he, he doesn't fit the criteria. So, what ostensibly is a commitment to extending liberal understandings of plurality ends up being a, a deep deformation of it because it makes invisible That half of the group that doesn't fit with the monovalent understanding of what the group has to be. It's, it's a terrible deformation of liberalism. Hmm. So it's a, it's a big problem.
0: Hmm. So back, you know, on the, on the, uh, religion and the the yard signs, you know, as you noted, there's this, this angel of death. I've noticed in, you know, at least in my community that some of our Facebook discussions that even, uh, some activists are saying, well, wealthy people who were you know have nice homes to live in that part of town that put up Black Lives Matter sign, don't get it. They didn't they weren't uh, absolved. Um and, and we see beyond Black Lives Matter these almost creedal in nature. I've seen some religion reporters say that there's these si- you know we see these signs or we did see these signs that said uh uh love is love, Black yes, Lives Matter, yes. water is clean and yes. you know we believe in science. We believe in science and right. very creedal, Yeah. Mm-hmm. And those seem to have disappeared. But there seems to be new memes, new trends that arrive in our yards. Yeah. So
1: it is, it is creedal. Um, it's, it's a, it, well, I think the term virtue signaling is absolutely quite wrong. We really need to see this theologically. So virtue is a Greek good. Uh, but innocence and, and transgression, these are biblical categories. So I think we have to stop using the term virtue signaling and, and see it in its theological context. Mm. So the, the bigger picture that I'd, I'd like to paint is this one. Which is that, um, you know, something happened to religion in America in the 20th century. Uh, one simple way to put this is that the churches have gone soft. Reinhold Niebuhr, who I, you know, have a, a lifelong love of, uh, spent all of his life, early part of the tw- 20th century up to the late 60s, um, trying to remind the mainline churches and the Protestants, the Protestant group, um, that original sin matters, that judgment matters, uh, Uh, there were rabbis in the Jewish tradition that were trying to bring back the notion of guilt and stain, Rabbi Soloveitchek in the 1950s, Uh, and of course there have always been Catholics who have been trying to do this too, but what happened, I mean to put the matter really simply, is that instead of holding together the God of love and the God of judgment, the churches went for the God of love, and that's what most of the churches are all about. We accept you, come on in, everybody's welcome, we make no judgments. And so you would think that that the notion of, of irredeemable stain and guilt simply went away, because it left the churches. And my argument is, the primordial experience of man is this experience of guilt, and that if the churches are unwilling to provide a theological account of this, then it will step into politics. And my argument is, it was it's the failure of the churches to talk about guilt that has led to this identity politics movement. So the Pew Charitable Trust has done a number of polls, as you know, suggest that religiosity in America is dissipating. And my response to that is, no, it's not. It's just young people and older people hmm. are looking for a way to think through moral transgression, mm-hmm. purity, and stain, and they no longer find it in the churches. Um, and so they found a, a moral economy of guilt and stain with identity politics with intersectional scores. Hmm. So, in fact, religion is alive and well in the form of identity politics, even though the churches are dying. That's why I say we're in the midst of a great awakening without God and without forgiveness, mm-hmm. because the central concern in the great awakening was purity and stain. Mm-hmm. And so that's all we're concerned about is purity and stain. Even, in my view, the, the, the green stuff, the green energy. You know, I'm, I'm a scientist before I'm a political philosopher. Uh, my view is we should, A, have an all of the strategy. We should do everything we can to move to... I'm not going to use the word clean, but to more advanced technologies for energy energy generation. I am very troubled, however, by the words clean and dirty, because these are theological terms that are brought to bear on science. And I think I think much of, of what's going on is actually a search for cleanliness, purity. Uh, I, so many of my young students are overwhelmed with the need to go green and want to say things like, well, I'm a victim, Mm-hmm. of 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 capitalism and dirty fossil fuels everybody needs to be a victim.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and I think so we can't think clearly about the science
0: when everything is about innocence and victimhood. Hmm. So it's a big problem in my view. So uh, one more follow up on this theme what we were sitting here in Prague and we were dealing with religion reporting with our students across the river and one fun thing is we were having them report on religion and what is by some called the most atheistic country or city on earth um religion historically very rich in czech republic but has declined and if we go back to america it, with the decline of religion that you referenced um tara isabella burton has a book sacred rights and this notion of people replacing yeah. religion when when re- organized religion declines replacing it with other sacred rituals yeah. etc yeah. but uh, I'd like you to comment on that, but also, in other, do other. is America unique in replacing uh, religion with the things that you've been talking about in this book? I mean, did the Czech Republic replace it with um, these other political philosophies, or is this something new? Well, first on the matter of the, of the so-called movement from a religious
1: epic to a secular epic, my view is there is no such thing as pure secularism. There's always going to be religious deformations. That, that step in. So Tocqueville is, I think, prominent for saying, or, or prescient for having said that the French Revolution was an incomplete religion. Right? So the Catholic Church is rejected, but in its place, they put an incomplete religion. Marxism, I think, is an incomplete religion because it secularizes the, or immunitizes the eschaton, as Eric Vogel famously said. My view is that identity politics immunitizes the scapegoat, the whole idea of the scapegoat. And so in Christianity, very briefly, you've got a, a transcendent innocent victim. There's only one innocent victim, and all the rest of us are guilty. Yes? Um, and that scapegoat takes away the sins of the world. So if you immunitize the scapegoat, you move what is a vertical relationship to a horizontal relationship, and you have a scapegoat over here who will take away the sins of the world and the innocent victims over here. So my view is that identity politics is, in fact, the third incomplete religion that's now upon us. This is why I say to conservatives, Stop talking about this as if it's cultural Marxism. It is not. It's something entirely new. It's the third great incomplete religion. So I, I, I have never believed that secularism follows in the wake of the, the, the loss of Christianity. Tocqueville famously said, forgive me because I'm, I'm teaching him here, uh, he said 18th century, this is in 1835, 18th century philosophers had the idea that religion would die down as enlightenment spread. It is tiresome that the facts do not fit the theory. So he already saw that. So we're, so whenever you move away from Christianity, you get a deformation of Christianity, not the end of Christianity. Mm-hmm. So to the point about the book, yes, we're going to keep it, because we need rites and rituals. Uh, and, and that's what identity politics offers. It's a religious longing.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you saw a column recently by Ezra Klein in the New York times where he was reviewing a couple of books, I think. And, but he was making the point of, um, kind of like, where does this lead or, or, um, he was noting that as, as an outsider to Christianity, the notions of like forgiveness uh, are things that are missing from this current progressive religion. Yeah. And are, are you seeing that discussion more broadly, or is, that, are, is it beginning, or is it um, so, have traction? So the, the groups that have been most interested in
1: what I've been writing are first Catholics and more recently Protestants. And I think it's that sequence is telling. Catholics love the story I'm telling because what I'm really saying is it's not just a deformation of Christianity. And this returns us to your question about what's peculiar, what's peculiarly American about this. Um, I'm, I'm really arguing this is a deformation of Protestantism because Protestantism had a radical understanding of the brokenness of man, of the, of the irredeemables. So I think when Hillary Clinton said these people are irredeemable, you can twist this ever so slightly. And, and it's simply saying that these people have original sin; they can't be can't be saved. So, my argument is that this this particular thing is a deformation of the Reformation. Catholics look at me and they say, "Of course, because the Reformation itself is a deformation, and so you're going to expect only subsequent deformations uh, from from this." And so, of course, identity politics comes out of Protestantism, and you have to return to the church. That's mm-hmm. Group A. Um, the second group are, and these are more recent, are Protestants. Um, now, in the Protestant churches, from what I can tell right now, notwithstanding the slow death in the mainline churches, in the evangelical community, there's actually some really interesting things happening. You've got a group who said, the churches capitulated to the state on COVID, and they're done. And so the the evangelical community is being ripped in half between those who said, sorry, the Eucharist must be delivered no matter what. And those who, because we are spiritual beings, no, we're not just COVID carriers, right? You can shut Mm -hmm. down the world if you're just a COVID carrier. But if we're more than that, no, you can't shut down the churches. So you've got a new group of Protestants who are think that the old leadership has completely collapsed. And they can see exactly what has happened. Namely, as the old, as the evangelical churches went soft and lost sight of original sin, uh, this longing to understand transgression went out into the world. And so the way back is, is not to reject identity politics, but to invite those who participate in it back into the churches. Because to use my language, identity politics is feasting on crumbs Hmm. that Christianity offers. That if you're really looking for a theory of irredeemable stain, don't bother looking at for it. Looking for it. And this is to your point in a monovalent group called white Mm -hmm. or whiteness. That's stupid. Now what you need to do is is to realize that the claim about irredeemable stain is always already in us. Um, That makes us morally culpable beings. And this, by the way, to come back to Black America. You know, when you say stain is in whiteness and blacks are innocent victims, my black conservative friends say, if you want to destroy black America, you do that. You say they're not responsible for anything. They don't have to pick up their own lives. They don't have to work within their mediating institutions, their families, their churches. They don't have to work hard in school. We can not have grades. We cannot have tests. If they act up, we're not going to take them out of class. Black conservatives are are incensed about this distinction between purity and stain, because it takes moral responsibility out of the black community. And Martin Luther King, black conservative, said, the only way we survived slavery was to have moral responsibility. So uh, it's, a, it's a huge deformation. And um, back to the matter of forgiveness, uh, so I, I think when you, when you put it back into the church, then you can still have the category of irredeemable stain, but then you get a richness that you can't have with just identity politics. You can talk about repentance. You can talk about forgiveness. You can talk about atonement. Uh, and so, while I'm critical of identity politics, ultimately what I'm suggesting is that there's a profound religious sensibility at root here, um, which has lost its bearings entirely. Hmm. Uh, and so, I think the protestant churches are the ones because this is really based on irredeemable stain i think they're the ones that have to pull their act together i'm not saying america has to become a protestant nation i am saying that so many of those who are enthralled by this come out of this tradition by the way it's not an accident then that that the protestants in north america and the protestants in western europe are the ones who are most guilty of this right Mm the netherlands for example it's identity politics stuff Mm -hmm. it's really in the protestant countries um, and so so I think it's a Protestant problem. Mm. Catholics say, well, yeah, then Protestantism itself is the problem. My answer is, no, and Protestantism is here to stay. The proof of which is that people are captivated by the idea of irredeemable staying, which was the fundamental Protestant claim against the Catholics who wanted a semi-Pelagian understanding of the brokenness of man. So I'm saying, no, Protestantism is alive and well. It's called identity politics. Uh, It just doesn't know itself as Protestantism right now. So, so I think there are some church leaders who recognize that they're the only ones that can bring these people back into the fold.
0: To be fair, I mean, on Protestantism, I mean, I know you're saying Protestants as a group, right? But it would seem there's still, even if we look at like a denomination like Southern Baptists or United Methodists, isn't, isn't there, isn't it more of a percentage that believe in identity politics and maybe percentages still are believing in original sin or uh, and yeah and here. that's
1: the titanic battle within all of these mainline denominations i mean the methodists for example are about to split
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and the southern baptist convention uh, you know that's one group and then uh people are splitting off from that because they've hired a pr firm that's committed to all sorts of things that are in the 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 uh the purview of the whole identity politics crowd mm-hmm. so that some people think the southern baptist convention is rapidly going woke. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the interesting thing is that the church is far from pressing back on it have been in a way the first to to embrace it mm-hmm. and my view of this is because the language that identity politics uses scapegoat original sin um mm-hmm. innocent victim i mean these are all christian terms but when you when you lose a rigorous theology uh, then you're going to get churches that really believe that identity politics is the fruition of the Christian message, which mm-hmm. I don't believe it is. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. You get that even uh, in Presbyterian Church in America, PCA, yes. uh, would be one of the most theologically conservative denominations. But you see these sorts of things yeah. developing there. Um, one thing I pick up when when you you mentioned earlier saying um, the. And this is a sublimated, or um, uh, a perversion of Christianity, particularly Protestantism, and that also provides an avenue that you invite these people in. The particular concerns you have are the ones we're addressing. And you, then you also included the term forgiveness, which it, it, it strikes me, in, excuse me, in discussing walkness that is not a term, Jack, that comes up. There's... Uh, and that, you know, one of its problems, even if you have your scapegoat and you power your sins on the scapegoat, and it goes off into the wilderness, then you discover, actually, the world's exactly as it was, and what do we do now? So. Right,
1: right, so this is great. So what I, part of the reason why I'm, you know, I always say, well, it's the white heterosexual male. But then, But then, to your point, I say, but wait a minute, that's not the end of it. Because if you have a transcendent scapegoat who, once and for all time, Takes away the sins of the world. It's over and done. If you have an imminent scapegoat, once you purge him, once you get the boys to go off and get lost in drugs and pornography and they disappear, uh, you gotta have another scapegoat because you still, because if sin is original, I'm being theological, yeah. if sin is original, then, I mean, by the way, this I take to be the great insight of Christianity. If sin is original, there's no group out there that you could scapegoat that will make the problem go away. Mm-hmm. this is an astounding historical insight because throughout most of human history, group purgation has been exactly what you use. Mm. And my argument is that ultimately, this, this profound insight that you can't scapegoat another group is the basis of liberal pluralism. But there's a theological underpinning for this strange phenomena of liberal pluralism, and it's largely because when you've got a transcendent scapegoat, you know you can't blame it on the other guy. But as that dissipates, then what happens is we return to the primordial pagan view of group scapegoating. So, all right, so you get rid of the white guy, and the next, you got to have someone else, because you still feel this, but you're not prepared to say something within me, so you need someone else. It's the Karens, you know, this mean white Mm -hmm. man. That's the next one. But then, but then, Mm -hmm. you know, to come to race, the next group has already started to be identified. It's black, heterosexual males, Mm -hmm. who believe in the family and believe in the church. And so the irony of all this is identity politics ostensibly begins with a view to black America as victim, hmm. legitimate, <clears throat> yes, I agree. But but then it uses the trope of black American, the black American wound, to go further. So the argument on the left is, as civil rights goes, so goes women's rights, so goes gay, gay, and lesbian rights, so goes transgender rights. The is a. Groups can have more claims, but they can't rest on. The claim, the moral authority of Black America, which is what they've done. And most Black Americans I know reasonably well are disgusted by it. That's the first thing. Well, the second thing is, when you get to the claim, the transgender claim, which is that, that to believe that a man is a man, is a woman is a woman, is some sort of a thought crime. You're guilty of cisgendering or whatever, heteronormativity. Um, then there's a problem because if you've, if you've fed parasitically on the original wound, which is black America, then what you're doing is you're ultimately now going, you're getting to the point where you want to undermine the conventional family and undermine the conventional church, both of which have been linchpins to black survival in the aftermath of the Civil War. I mean, Martin Luther King was very clear. It's through the churches and through the families that black America survived the catastrophe, the legal catastrophe of the American regime. So, so, if you're interested, really, in supporting black America, then you have to support the families and the churches. But now, if the families, in their conventional understanding, are considered to be guilty, then you've ended up undermining the very group that was the moral authority for the whole project to begin in the first place. So, and I've talked to black conservatives about this. They sort of see it, frankly, most of them are too scared to touch it right now. And I, I say to them, you have more moral authority in America now than you did during the civil rights movement." And they say, how so? And I say, because you alone could say, no, you you can't use our wound. You can't use our wound. And you can, feminists can talk in the way they want to do, gays and lesbians can talk in the way they want to do, and transgenders can talk in the way they do. But you can't use our wound as the basis of the moral authority, which is really the game that's been played. And let me say one thing that's... It's, I think it's true, but it's, it's very troubling. So why did the Supreme Court nominee say I can't say what a woman is? In my view, there's a very sick thing that's happening right now in elite institutions. And here I mean to speak specifically about the condition under which black Americans are invited in. <clears throat> to those elite institutions. It was, in my view, not an accident that she said, I don't know what a woman is. Or the recent, uh, or in the recent uh, hearing in which Josh Hawley uh, confronted the uh, Berkeley black law professor, in which she was trying to defend birthing persons as opposed to women. These are not accidents. The sick deal that gets worked out is that all these other groups among black elites at these elite places, is that all these other groups get to piggyback on the black wound, provided that these blacks, black elites, um, uh, defend the their their movements. And the reason why it's really twisted is because most of Black America believes that a man is a man, is a woman is a woman, uh, believe in the church, and yet the price of admission to becoming a, a black elite is you have to allow. Other innocent victim groups to play on yours, and you have to go along with theirs. And so it's not by accident that Harvard law professors and Berkeley law professors will say, "No, a woman is, is we don't know a woman." Hmm. Not by accident at all. So it's it's deeply twisted because black leaders, I think, do have the moral authority to say, "No," you know. Again, I'm a liberal pluralist, which means there are always going to be exceptions to the rule. My view on on this is that. You always have to bet on the pack, and most human beings believe that a man is a man is a woman. Can there be exceptions to the rule? Absolutely, there can be exceptions to the rule. But the exception can't become the rule. And that's what identity politics does. It makes the exception the rule, and everyone else who doesn't go along with the exception somehow guilty to thought that can't Mm -hmm.
0: work. But that's the game of identity politics. Well, as you, as you look at, if this is a chess match, you think, well, I'm I'm starting to see 50, at least 50% of the population, that being women, kind of reacting to, um, some some of, of what you're describing. And how, how does this play out? You know, does it play out where uh, uh, some group gambling that the boomers and the Gen X die off and, and Y and Z takes over and, you know, the traditional black families and church going and uh, of, of all races, you know, go away? Or, you know, h- how does this play out? And, and also a question to both of you, curious because you're both historians and, and several topics. I mean, have we seen this rodeo before in history, or is this an entirely new uh, st- strategy match we're watching play out? In? So, one answer is,
1: the Salem witch trials are instructive. Because that was a search for a scapegoat. And when did it end? When you ran out of scapegoats, for starters. But but there's a there's another, I think, insidious logic. Insidious logic. It's a logic of self-destruction that's playing out. So, Imagine, I mean, we've been doing this already, but imagine a line where you start with civil rights and then go to women's rights and then go to gay rights and then go to transgender rights. It turns out that each time you go further, the group that heretofore was an innocent victim now becomes a transgressor. So Martina Navarrova and J.K. Rowling were who who are feminists who were saying, women are women. Well, that used to be, you know, it used to be a perfectly defensive position and they were the, the innocent victims who had to have compensation in a way. So so the logic of identity politics is that you may have once been an innocent victim, but the farther out you go, eventually the innocent victims become the transgressors too. And so, you know, J.K. Rowling and a whole generation of 1960s feminists who thought they were among the innocent, now it turns out they're among the damned, all right? So I think one way it ends is when those groups that were, were aligned with the, all the innocent victims, they begin to see that, no, no, they're next. So I think Black Americans, conventional Black Americans, are next. I think feminists are next.
0: Are Asians as well? And I mean, well, oh, jeopardy In some ways, Asians or? are this
1: inter. And Asians and Jews are this intermediate category, right? They're not. They're not Black Americans, um, and I'd say even Hispanics who are making a huge advance in American mm-hmm. society. I mean, they're going to be the next great middle class. Um, So there's not a category for those. And and if I can just press this a bit further, if you look at the polls, we're finding that Asians and Hispanics are getting really, really disgusted with the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Because you've got this dance that goes on between black elites and white elites. And it's all about racism and and all about more state support. But all of these other ethnic groups understand, to use Tokyo's language, that it's the family and the churches that made them strong. Uh, And so they're just sick of this this race dance that elite blacks and whites are doing and that's why they're beginning to migrate over to the Democratic Party. So racial fatigue is set in in all places except the the, the woke corporate boardrooms and the higher universities where the price of admission is that you have to admit that America is systemically racist, that you have privilege and if you're black you have to accept the claims of feminist, gay, gays and lesbians and the trans You have to. Mm-hmm. That's the deal that gets cut, and it's, in my view, so disgusting, because to come back to the earlier the point, race is a huge issue. We have to address it, but it can't be, I've said this in print, I'm going to get myself into trouble with it, but I've said black America now is divided into the untouchables and the disposables, and by that I mean there's a group of black elites who, who get the call-out rights, you're racist, et cetera, but in, but in exchange for their, their right, to make these declarations and to be untouchable. They have to support the farthest left version of identity politics. But then you've got the disposables. This is the permanent black underclass that uh, whose mediating institutions have been ripped apart by the great society programs in their aftermath, um, who, whose problems are dealt with by more and more state support, most of which money goes to a, a huge group of, of helpers uh, in, in the professions, um, who depend on them being permanently incapacitated. Mm-hmm. So Martin Luther King's dream of having the state supplement the mediating institutions has now turned into a nightmare where you've got the indispensables or the untouchables rather and, and the disposables. Mm. And, and that you can't build a society that way. And black society is torn apart by this group. And I think by this tension, and and I think black conservatives frankly are in the middle because they're very attuned to the need for mediating institutions uh, for for modest government programs, but they can't destroy the mediating institutions. But to come back to your point, they're invisible. Hmm. They're not on CNN. You cannot. Hmm. You can't be Bob Woodson or Glenn Lowry and get asked to be interviewed by CNN.
0: Well, even I mean, even if we look at the New York City mayoral race recently. Eric Adams was not the favored candidate endorsed by the New York Times. Other more progressive candidates were, but he's a a, a black man who experienced uh, uh harassment by police. I think said he was in a gang as a youth, who uh, he grew up poor, who became a police officer. And his campaign item as a Democrat was I'm going to clean up the city, I don't believe in defund the police, yeah. et cetera. And he won. It wasn't white elites who helped him in, it was working class. And is that kind of thing um does that or anything else give us hope? Yeah. If people read this book, and by the way, I haven't. Uh, I, I need, let me give you the full title: American Awakening, Identity, Politics, and Other Afflictions of Our Time. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so if that people is, read your book, is there hope as well, or is it?
1: I, I do. I mean, first of all, I, I think it's my obligation to point out the the darkness of this whole situation, but I do ultimately end on a hopeful note because uh, I think I think. So I set up in the book, The Politics of Competence versus The Politics of Innocence and Transgression. And my view long term is that the politics of competence will win and that we won't in 10 or 20 years be running around looking at our innocence intersectionality scorecard. But the way it's going to happen is, one, this internal logic of of decomposition that I talked about, the farther out you go than than the earlier groups start saying, hey, I don't want to be an innocent victim anymore. I'm, I'm going to side with these guys, the, the, the group that never played that game in the first place. But, so that's one. But then I think, uh, so I characterize COVID as the gift that keeps on giving because I think what COVID did was that it made possible a kind of visibility of curriculum that heretofore had not been out there. Uh, so parents were walking by their children's computer terminals, and saying, wait, you're teaching them that? And so you've got you got parents up in a revolt around the country against CRT and and DEI in the sixteen nineteen project. Um and I take that to be a good thing. So I think I think the middle class is pushing back against this. I think mothers are gonna be crucial to this because and I'm especially concerned about the, the, what's happening with the transgender movement because I mean you can Talk about the, the movement itself. Politically, it's the state stepping into the family ever more than it ever has. Because now what's happening is you've got the state and its representatives telling kids who, who are not having these conversations with their parents that any sort of trouble they might be having in their own heads must mean that they're transgender. So the kind of penetration into the family, which, which has never happened before. And I think, you know, a mother who, who has a kid. At some point, they're going to say, not my baby. Hmm. So I think that movement is already happening, too. And then finally, I would say, um, you know, this is my larger view of history, is that America can really be seen as having a threefold, three-phase three history. The first is what I call citizen competence. This is the founder's vision, where you have limited government. And the only reason you have limited government is because you have a citizenry that's competent. And then things appeared to be getting too complicated in the 1880s, and so you have the beginning of the progressive movement. And in the second phase of American history is the movement toward expert competence and the development of all these institutions of higher education that would, would produce our experts, whether it's in foreign policy, whatever else it happens to be. And I think we're in a third moment, which is uh, the, the, the rejection of competence entirely and an elite class which is now uh, moved over to believing that that innocent signaling is the most important thing that they could do, and so you're not paying attention to competence. And I frankly think the Biden administration is the first administration where you have a full-on commitment to these identity politics tropes, which means that everything they're touching is turning into a disaster. And so I think I think politically, uh, I think politically, what's going to happen is you, you're going to move away from this politics of innocence and transgression. I would say one more thing about Biden's. Uh, and, and Pelosi and Schumer. So Biden, Pelosi, and Schumer, Schumer they're, they're an older generation. Um, while I'm no longer a Democrat, I would say, that at least at their best, they do understand that that competence matters, expert competence matters. And I see them as fending off very unsuccessfully a new generation, the AOCs, the world, who can only think in terms of identity politics. And so while I do think the current regime is, is quite a disaster, I think the alternative would be far worse, because you still have this older generation who who know that you can't do that. Now, the way this is playing out in in the Democratic Party is that you've got one group, the old group, that believes that we have to take issues one step at a time. And then you have this new group who believe that, no, all of these things are together. So, for example, the recent protests against uh, the Supreme Court decision, there were signs uh out there in the street that said defund the police mm-hmm. meaning this is not just roe versus wade this is defund the police this is systemic racism and the younger group doesn't have the, the political finesse that the older group had and that's the titanic battle within the democratic party right now mm-hmm. you know when as much as again i think that the current administration is a disaster i think the alternatives would be far worse they at least know that there's such a thing as legislation and a bit of back and forth the younger group They've had it. They don't want process at all. They just want the, the full outcome of identity politics. Hmm. And I think, I think that will be a disaster for the Democratic Party. There will literally have to be a refounding of the Democratic Party. But, but all the moderates have been driven out. All the old lefties like me, uh, they, they either, like what I once was, they either see what's happening now as a, as a perfectly continuous movement from the party of the 1960s, which I think is wrong, um, or they see it as a deformation of the longings of the 60s generation, but they realize they'll be canceled if they step out. So the moderates were expunged from the Democratic Party in 2010, and now it's just the young ones, and a, and a few of the old guards are still in control, barely, but next time around they won't be.
0: Hmm. Well, you know, for so many people who are wrestling with these issues and trying to figure out how to think about the... Uh, I mean, flood of ideas coming, coming at, uh, people in so many ways. I mean, this is a great book to go check out. And if they want to, uh, thanks for being with us today. And, uh, any, where should people, uh, should they follow you on, on Substack or Twitter? Where else are you kind of writing and thinking these days if they want to buy the book and follow what else you're doing? So I have to say, I don't have any social media presence whatsoever. Good I have email. <laughs> I have
1: email. They can write me a note, but the book can be found on Amazon. It's uh, a second edition is coming out. Uh, By encounter books in another three or four months. I've written a new pre- preface which is I think a further development of the thesis, but uh, Yeah, I'm 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 at
0: Georgetown. So I mean a- great. Thanks so much. Dr. Mitchell again. Dr. Marshall for being here today Okay, thank you
3: The Religion Unplugged podcast is hosted by Paul Glader. Today's guests included Dr. Paul Marshall, a professor of political science at Baylor University, and the Jerry and Susie Wilson Chair in Religious Freedom at the Institute for Studies of Religion. Dr. Marshall is also the former senior fellow from the Center for Religious Freedom at the Hudson Institute. Also joining the discussion was Dr. Joshua Mitchell, a professor of political theory at Georgetown University and the author of several books, including American Awakening, Identity Politics, and Other Afflictions of Our Time. Today's episode was edited and produced by Ben Warwick and Rich Rossell. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or The Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at Religion Mag.